Hello and welcome to the Barcast. I'm your host, Nick Barr, coming to you on a sunny Sunday afternoon. I want to spend this time mulling over some confusions, um, registering some some priors, as the cool kids might say, uh, just getting some stuff out there. So this will be a particularly disjointed bar cast. But I, I bought this book, came out a couple of years ago by Steven Pinker called Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. And I, I bought it actually because I, I've been super dismissive of this book and what I think it stands for ever since it came out and uh, find myself kind of having uh, a negative reaction to all forms of singularity or uh, optimism, longevity, AI, obsession. Uh, I kind of have this weird allergy to a lot of these fields, even as a lot of my friends are investing time and energy into, into them. And so I thought, Hmm, that's, that's strange. Like why, what is it that I don't like about these things? What, what's, what's rubbing me the wrong way. And so I, I wanted to buy this book and read it and see both where I'm, where I'm turned off and why, as well as see if, if, I'm able to evolve my thinking at all, but I haven't, I haven't started the Pinker book. Well, I've, I read the first chapter uh, and, and I found myself just kind of like, <clears throat> like grumpy already reading it. And so I thought, well, why don't I just take a couple minutes to, to blurt out why I would, I would say I'm an anti-optimist. I don't think I'm a pessimist. I just, I'm anti-optimism. And share some of the the things that have influenced me the last couple of years, and and explore with you right now what what's going on exactly. I'll say that one of the most significant reads for me in my at least in my adult life has been *The Beginning of Infinity* by David Deutsch. Who who is sort of one of the the foremost optimists? Um, the book is really fantastic, especially the first few chapters. Um, I'm, I've mentioned it before on the barcast. I'm not going to go gonna, not going to go into it. And I, sh- I wish I was better at summarizing this book, but it's it's hard for me to summarize. I guess Deutsch's thesis. Or, or one of his theses is that, um, well, th- there are kind of two two operating principles you could have. One is that uh, there are always going to be problems. Problems are inevitable. And uh, actually, all problems are solvable. There's no, there's no problem now or in the future that uh, is not solvable. Uh, I think later he adds, so long as it obeys the laws of physics. 
and so when he talks about his optimism, his optimism, Deutsch's, is um, any evil or any failure in the world is simply um, due to insufficient knowledge. Because if we had sufficient knowledge, we could solve the problem. Um, and 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 he goes on to to make. Uh, some important specific points. He's helped me kind of figure human significance. He does a great job sort of presenting and ultimately rejecting frameworks like what he calls the principle of mediocrity, which is to sort of say like, we're just evolved apes, sort of man is nothing but animal. We're nothing special. And in fact, the earth is nothing special. The sun is a, a middling star, right? You've heard all all this stuff. Um, so he, he has clever ways of rejecting that framework. He has clever ways of rejecting the spaceship earth idea, which is sort of the idea that earth Gaia, mother nature is sort of our, um, inheritance, uh, and we must take care of her. Uh, he, he rejects that, um, both of those he, he calls sort of parochial perspectives. Parochial you'll find as you read these people is, is sort of this incredibly useful catch-all to put down anyone else's perspective. So it sort of thrusts you into galaxy brain mode as soon as you call anyone else parochial. Um, so uh, uh, these are parochial perspectives. And and Deutsch will argue people, people are the most significant things in the universe. Uh, and that's like kind of a, that's a big st- statement. People are the most significant things in the universe. And uh, it's not because mother earth nourished them. No, I mean, mother earth has actually done nothing but fight against the survival of people. Um, and obviously we're not mediocre. We're the most important things in the universe. In fact, we only, uh, know of ourselves right now. Um, and they're, they're so important because once people are equipped with knowledge and like Pinker, Deutsch locates knowledge as sort of starting around the enlightenment. Maybe there've been other enlightenments in the past, but the European enlightenment has sparked, uh, an unprecedented continuous knowledge spurt. Once, once humans have knowledge, they're equipped with knowledge. They're capable of sparking unlimited further progress, right? And um, when we talk about uh, unlimited knowledge, Deutsch uses the phrase universal constructor a lot. A universal constructor can convert any raw material to basically any physical transformation. So for instance, if if we use a telescope and look 20 billion miles away or whatever into some, some strange thing that's happening. Uh, a star is exploding or, um, or, or crumbling or, or converting into some other kind of energy. Well, there's only two explanations for it. Either, either some natural event in the universe is happening and maybe the star is exploding and, and for a specific reason or whatever, or, or a human is doing it. I mean, a person is doing it, right? Because people through knowledge are capable of causing these changes, these transformations. Um, yeah, you can see I'm not doing a great job. So, so read the book. 
Uh, but I, I found that, I found that to be, to be useful and to be resonant. Like there, there are so many things that happen in the universe and here on earth that can only sort of be explained through, uh, through human knowledge or through, through, through knowledge itself. He has an example of, uh, a cork popping off a champagne bottle held in a fridge somewhere. And if we were trying to explain what caused that cork to pop off, we wouldn't describe it in, in terms of like molecules colliding. Um, we would describe it in, in through explanations, through, um, through knowledge events. God, I've really done a, a shit job explaining this. But I'm gonna I'm gonna power through it because actually I I'm not here to discuss Deutsch in any detail. If anything, this can be a, a uh, an artifact for me to appreciate that I need to revisit all this stuff. But when you read this, you start to kind of develop a pro pro human or pro person perspective until you read. Deutsch's definition of what a person is. Um, a person, as he defines it, is an entity that can create explanatory knowledge. An entity that can create explanatory knowledge. Uh, okay, that's kind of it's kind of interesting, and, and it, it makes sense uh, as a definition to advance Deutsch's points. But you kind of get the sense as you read Deutsch through that lens that. For him and for a lot of these so-called optimists, uh, people, i.e. human beings, are nothing but hosts for a technology that we could call knowledge that to our not, to, to our current knowledge, to our current understanding, um, requires humans to proliferate to our, to our current understanding people human beings are the only known hosts for knowledge knowledge doesn't exist outside of people uh, we're working on it with computers we're not all the way there because um, computers aren't yet capable of creating knowledge they're capable of storing knowledge transmitting knowledge etc um, as soon as computers overcome that last hurdle of creating knowledge, they'll, they too will become people. And if we imagine that world in which humans are merely hosts for an alien technology, well then at that moment, the, the parasite won't need the host anymore. Um, and in fact might be, glad to be rid of it. And if that gives you any, any concern, well, then you're just being parochial because people will continue to exist and will in fact now exist in a sort of more durable way than before. Uh, humans are so irrational as we know, they, they evolved from monkeys and amoeba. Um, so better off not to need them. And that's, that's what I find weird about these optimisms is they're optimistic through a very specific, very computational lens and ultimately reject any other lens as 
parochial, inferior, fleshy. Um, I read recently a, a very pessimistic book called Straw Dogs, Thoughts on Humans and Other Animals that sort of takes the opposite angle. And uh, while I didn't find it as compelling as Deutsch, there are some, there are some powerful uh, quotes in there, certainly. Um, Gray, the writer, uh, completely rejects this, this optimism as ridiculous and um, points to the destruction of Earth as evidence enough that we're on no laudable trajectory. He writes, the destruction of the natural world is not the result of global capitalism, industrialization, Western civilization, or any flaw in human institutions. It is a consequence of the evolutionary success of an exceptionally rapacious primate. Throughout all of history and prehistory, human advance has coincided with ecological devastation. Um, well, he's not wrong. And he has a number of other hard-hitting phrases that I think, if nothing else, serve to do two things for me. One is uh, appreciate that as human beings, we don't have a great track record. And so maybe while we continue to quote-unquote improve, um, we're still... Uh, we're still deluded animals with that destructive personality. Um, so, so it does that for me. Um, but he does, I, I think ultimately gray doesn't survive Deutsch's condemnation of the spaceship earth framework. And so I, I tend to side with Deutsch in the sense that like, uh, our our potential destruction of Earth um, isn't isn't like sufficient proof that um, that we're fucked. I guess I would say Gray doesn't really see a life after the destruction of Earth. He he says Earth will outlive us. And I, I can imagine a world where we outlive Earth. Gray doesn't really speak too much to the the rapaciousness of technology and the rapaciousness of knowledge. And I think that's one of his missed opportunities. He he really feels quite satisfied figuring humans as deluded animals. And maybe maybe that's the right ultimate source of truth, but I think I think knowledge is technology. The the knowledge that Deutsch describes, and I assume Pinker will describe. I, I think technology has its own rapaciousness, and um, I find the rapaciousness of technology and the way that it infects humans to be super interesting. And so I'll, I'll try to close with some thinking around that because I feel like that's I'm getting closer to the center of my 
my interests or my allergies around the subject. So yes, we've, we've evolved. I don't know. I don't know if biological evolution itself is quite sufficient to describe the way we've evolved, which is we are super constructors of knowledge are creating knowledge all the time. And uh, what we've, what we've evolved to do even better than actual constructing of knowledge is I would say conceptualization, uh, essentially converting the world around us into digital information that can then be used to create knowledge. So um, I think maybe I'll, 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 dig out um, a passage from Karl Ova Knausgaard, who, who I think writes really beautifully about this, although, again, in a completely different framework. So, so we'll have to do a little bit of connective work. But he writes about the way we, we create concepts. Art has become a spectator of itself, the way it reacts, what newspapers write about it. The artist is a performer. That is how it is. Art doesn't know a beyond. Science does not know a beyond. Religion does not know a beyond. Not anymore. Our world is enclosed around itself, enclosed around us, and there is no way out of it. Those in this situation who call for more intellectual depth, more spirituality, have understood nothing, for the problem is that the intellect has taken over everything. Everything has become intellect, even our bodies. They aren't bodies anymore, but ideas of bodies, something that is situated in our own heaven of images and conceptions within us and above us, where an increasingly large part of our lives is lived. The limits of that which cannot speak to us, the unfathomable, no longer exist. We understand everything, and we do so because we have turned everything into ourselves. Nowadays, as one might expect, all those who have occupied themselves with the neutral, the negative, the non-human in art, have turned to language. That is where the incomprehensible and the otherness have been sought, as if they were to be found on the margins of human expression, on the fringes of what we understand, and of course, actually that is logical. Where else would it be found in a world that no longer acknowledges that there is a beyond? It is in this light we have to see the strangely ambiguous role death has assumed. On the one hand, it is all around us. We are inundated by news of deaths, pictures of dead people. For death in that respect, there are no limits. It is massive, ubiquitous, inexhaustible. But this is death as an idea, death without a body, death as thought and image, death as an intellectual concept. This death is the same as the word death, the bodiless entity referred to when a dead person's name is used. For while the person is alive, the name refers to the body, to where it resides, to what it does. 
the name becomes detached from the body when it dies and remains with the living, who, when they use the name, always mean the person he was, never the person he is now, a body which lies rotting somewhere. This aspect of death, that which belongs to the body and is concrete, physical and material, this death is hidden with such great care that it borders on a frenzy, and it works. Just listen to how people who have been involuntary witnesses to fatal accidents or murders tend to express themselves. They always say the same. It was absolutely unreal, even though what they mean is the opposite. It was so real. But we no longer live in that reality. For us, everything has been turned on its head. For us, the real is unreal, the unreal real. And death, death is the last great beyond. That is why it has to be kept hidden. Because death might be beyond the term and beyond life, but it is not beyond the world. So, um, well, that's a great passage. And there are a lot of directions we could take it, but let's try to contain it within this conversation around optimism. So, so one tension in the optimist-pessimist universalist parochial world is, is, and this is why climate change always figures into this so prominently is like Deutsch's optimism of all problems are solvable. All raw material can be converted into anything is a very sort of uh, universal paperclips type framework. It's, it's sort of this runaway, the potential for runaway uh, conversion of material into information. And um, we're seeing, I think, uh, in, in the world, uh, what it looks like when we, when we do that transformation, that conversion. Um, in our case, we destroy the, uh, the ecosystem. I don't know what, I don't know what's actually happening to the earth, the planet, but I know I have some ideas about what's happening to um, the species inhabiting it and, it, and it doesn't look good. So uh, we're not merely just converting um, fossil fuels or uh, solar energy or wind energy or whatever into power. We're also um, negatively impacting the ecosystem in which we live. So uh, to the to the John Gray straw dogs point, like we don't. We're, we're rapacious primates and it's, it's a little bit concerning to tie that rapaciousness to this cosmic optimism that Deutsch and presumably Pinker have. But I, I actually find that a little bit like less interesting or less of a deal breaker than the, uh, super bleak portrayal that Knausgaard I think is, is painting, which is the, the other kind of conversion we're doing, which is the, the real or the material into the abstract or the concept. Um, it's funny, the, there's a Pali word, um, papancha. I'm sure that's not how you pronounce it. Um, which is, uh, you can translate that into conceptual proliferation. And I love that word, word proliferation because, of course, it, it evokes nuclear proliferation, this runaway creation. 
And that's what our minds are doing constantly. We're, we are constantly forming and creating and working with concepts and, uh, tying, tying or creating sort of a bubble around ourselves in which we operate completely. Um, this, 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 uh, how does he put it? Our own heaven of images and conceptions within us and above us, where an increasingly large part of our lives is lived. Um, our, uh, we've sort of created some prisons for ourselves and, uh, I think what's interesting is, is in this, in this optimistic world that Deutsch and Pinker are describing, that's what, that's what knowledge creation looks like. I mean, that's the world we need to participate in in order to create knowledge. Or if you take the alien invasion perspective, um, our viral, um, the viruses that are occupying us, these sort of knowledge technologies, They've chosen us as hosts because of our incredible ability to conceptualize and they're sort of um, using us as essentially like scanning devices, right? I mean, if you've ever seen these bond guard problems, we know that one of the biggest challenges in AI is AI has an incredibly difficult time conceptualizing the raw material of the world. You can show it six shapes on the left side and six shapes on the right side. It will not be able to tell you the rule that um, determines which shape should go on which side, and, and humans can do this oftentimes trivially. So we're we're so good at conceptualizing uh, AI beyond beyond these these interesting high level problems. Just isn't as good at at scanning the real world. Um, it seems anyway, and so uh, um, here we are, sort of scanning our planet into uh, usable information for other knowledge creators. Um, and, and at some point the whole world is going to be scanned. I think Knausgaard is sort of saying like, we're, we're basically there because even the unknown has sort of been scanned as the unknown. Um, and uh, every once in a while you get sort of this stark reminder of how little of our lives is actually spent in the real. And of course, for Buddhists meditation, the purpose of that is to slow down conceptual proliferation. So you can spend a little bit of time in that real world. Um, and Knausgaard describes one of the inevitable, uh, waker uppers, which is death, which we all experience and thrusts us into the real. Um, and is so jarring that we're, we're more likely to call it unreal than real. And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, who, who evolved us to have that? What did he call it? Sort of a frenzied, um, let's see, um, The aspect of death, that which belongs to the body and is concrete, physical, and material, this death is hidden with such great care that it borders on a frenzy. Uh, who who did that hiding? I don't I don't know if we were did we evolve as human beings from the rapacious primates? I don't think so. There's there's something else going on that I don't completely understand and that none of the writers have seemed willing to engage in this coming to terms with death. 
And now we're getting closer to one of my sensitivities, which is longevity and all these things. They, those projects oftentimes seem, and, and maybe you'll have to introduce me to one of the, one of them. I'm sure they exist. See people who have come to terms with death and are also interested in working on longevity, but for the most part, people seem to kind of regard death as like a, a the greatest tragedy facing human beings. And, um, it's hard for, it's hard for me to accept that. And as I'm collecting all these resources and things, I guess what I worry about is it, it it's, it's a tragedy in the conceptual realm. And that doesn't mean that it's not a tragedy, but it means it's a tragedy in the way that like, it would be a tragedy for knowledge creation. And, and it, you know, extinction of knowledge creators would be a tragedy for knowledge creation. But in a way, like, isn't that parochial? I mean, everyone seems to agree the universe at large is completely indifferent. Uh, and I'm not, I, again, I'm not, I'm not evangelizing indifference. I'm not anti-longevity, but it's that it's, con- it's continuing to perpetuate this frenzied aversion to the real that I see in, in most of the optimism books and thinking that I encounter. And just as I find it a little bit hard to swallow that we're like, well, we got it, we got it wrong with earth, but we'll, we'll get the next planet, right? Um, so too, do I worry about the, like, well, sure, we can, we can live in the real anytime we want, but, but we choose to keep going down this path of conceptual proliferation. Um, we, to me, we look a lot like prisoners or we look a lot like hosts that have been hijacked by alien technologies. And until we demonstrate an ability to not destroy the real around us, either literally transforming raw material into other products or transforming the real world into concepts until we show some mastery of uh, being able to do or not do that, it's pretty hard to get excited about human beings as, um, as anything special. I think to be a true optimist, you have to sort of be an alien optimist. You have to be optimistic about the, the viral technologies that are currently using human beings as hosts and will hopefully be able to escape them. And, uh, if that's your bag, more power to you, but, uh, I think it's not for me and and that's why I enter a lot of these conversations in this book Enlightenment Now with some some skepticism and aversion. So that's it for the barcast. I I'll check back in once I've read the book and I hope to come back with a new perspective um in one way or another. Um so see you next time. <laughs>